this is Ibarianex, and this is The Candid Frame. Even though we enjoy access to the entire world in the palm of our hands with our smartphones and tablets, it is still so easy to take for granted the many wonders that this world has to offer. Whether naturally formed or man-made, there are things that when we see them, they leave us dumbstruck. And you will get a glimpse of many of those things in National Geographic's latest book, Spectacle, Rare and Astonishing Photographs. Through the eyes of some of the world's best photographers, we bear witness to some of the magical things our world has to offer. That includes humbling images of wildfires created by this week's guest, Mark Thiessen. In one jaw-dropping image, the fire surrounds him and the truck he's in as they try to escape a fast-moving wildfire. And Mark remembers exactly how he felt when he made that shot and saw it appear on the back of his camera's LCD screen. And I remember when I made that picture, I was, I piled down the motor drive as we went through all this smoke. I'm like, and, uh, <laughs> and, and then I'm looking at it and I'm like, wow. And he's and the division supervisor has got a million things. He's got two walkie talkies. He's going, he's driving with his knee. He's trying to coordinate all this stuff. And I was going, my gosh, did I just take that picture? Did I just take that picture? And I was looking at the back of my camera going, wow, I did just take that picture. That's unbelievable. That's a really good picture. And, and I, could, I could tell at that time that this was something that was going to stay with me. And then at that moment, I thought, about, I thought about, wow, what it took for me to be right there on that mountainside, on that dirt road in Montana that day and that hour. You can't be doing that from a studio in Washington, D.C., you can't be doing that from, the, from someplace else in Montana. I had to be right there at that particular time to get that picture. And the only way you do that is you, you are dogged and you're out there every day for five weeks and not taking a day off because you never know what's going to happen next when you're at a wildfire. Mark's work documenting wildfires began as a personal project rather than an assignment for National Geographic. But eventually, he was commissioned to produce such work for the magazine. And over his many assignments, he has come to understand that the images will only mean something if he can safely return. And that demands an understanding and respect for the power of fire. Fire is so counterintuitive. So here's, here's the thing. Like, when I first started this project... Um, I always thought, oh, there's the fire. There's there, like the black area where the fire was. That's dangerous. The fire was just there. I don't want to go near that. But actually what they train you is um, uh, stay, keep one foot in the black and you'll always come back. And what they mean by that is that black is where the fire is already burned. So if you can stay close to that, that's a good safety zone for you. If all of a sudden things change and the wind shifts right? So, so, and there's, and the fire world is full of these kind of counterintuitive things that, that, that you need to know to be safe. And then, then, then when you're out there and the other wildland firefighters see you doing those things and seeing that you're kind of acting like a wildland firefighter, they, they then think of you as one of them. And that is key. 
We'll talk to Mark about the many challenges in photographing wildfires, as well as how he uses his skills in the studio to make photographs of some of the world's most rare and precious objects. Welcome to the Candid Frame. Well, welcome to the Candid Frame. It's a real pleasure to, to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's, you know, I looked at your work for a while and, and you know, having a chance to sort of really dig deep in preparation for the interview, and it's just really fascinating the kinds of images that you've produced, both in the studio and as a result of the, the work that you've been doing with, with fire. But um, as you mentioned right before we started the interview, I really like the story about how you sort of got the bug in terms of wanting to, to take pictures and tell stories. Um, that, that story of you buying a, a scanner as a kid. Yes. So yeah. let's start there, because I think that's just a wonderful, wonderful story and a wonderful, fun, great way to start the interview. So I got started wanting to be a photojournalist when I was about 13 or 14. I had a paper route. I delivered the San Gabriel Valley Tribune, a paper that is still there. And every afternoon they drop off a stack of papers and before I would fold them I'd go through every page and look at who shot what. It had the, the names of the local photographers there. And gradually saved up my paper out money and I bought a camera and I bought a scanner and I'm too young to drive so my mom would drive me to spot news that I would hear <laughs> on my scanner. My first published picture I ever had was I heard on the scanner a car that was stalled on the tracks, train tracks, and a train came along and hit it. And they were dispatching fire crews to the scene. So I heard it on my scanner. My mom and I hopped in our Ford Pinto, and off we went to Valley Boulevard in the intersection with the railroad tracks. It was a spectacular car wreck. The driver jumped out at the last minute and fortunately was unharmed. But I photographed that wreck, and I dropped that roll of black and white film off at the newspaper around 8 in the morning right after it happened. And that afternoon on my front porch, around 2.30, came a big stack of papers, and right there on the cover was my photo. Mm. And I was hooked. I think I got a check for five bucks, and I befriended those newspaper photographers, and they helped me out a lot when they were on the sidelines of shooting our high school football games. And I went and saw how they printed in their dark room, and, and I just always wanted to do that ever since and i would go to dodger games and my friend had dad had great seats up close and i just watched the photographers with their big lenses in the well the photo well shooting the game i paid more attention to, to that than i did to the <laughs> to the actual game going on but what was it about the pictures that you were seeing in the in the newspaper that captured your imagination because most kids at that age you know, a newspaper, if anything, it's something that uh, they put on the bottom of a bird cage or a, a hamster cage. It's something that they're really looking at it and drawing inspiration from. What, what was it about those pictures that you were seeing on that paper that fascinated you so much? Well, first of all, I had been reading the newspaper since about third grade. My dad would leave for work before I would leave for school, and as I was eating breakfast, the newspaper was laying there on the kitchen table. And I would thumb through it and look at all the amazing pictures from all over the world. This was the LA Times mm. I was reading. And then that kind of piqued my interest because I thought, you know, somebody had to take these pictures. 
And then when I got my paper route, I would go and I would go to some of these spot news events. I would see the actual photographer who was taking the picture that was going to be in the newspaper that I would deliver. And I'd go up and talk to them. And so I had kind of this personal connection. And the next day in the paper, there would be that photo of the helicopter dropping water on the flames behind a house. And I had talked to that photographer that who shot that when he was shooting it. And I just held, had that connection and it just seemed like a great thing, a fun job, something that the barriers to entry then were hard, but I made it work. I had a lot of people along the way seeing this young, enthusiastic kid wanting to do this. And there's a lot of people who helped me out along the way mm-hmm. and kind of opened the doors. And that was just so important. Yeah. Because yeah, I, I can imagine that every kid probably has something that sort of sparks their imagination that they get really into, get into, but that enthusiasm for it can really sort of peter out if they're just doing that in isolation. Having people, especially your parents, encouraging you and sort of reinforcing the idea that this is something that you, you can do and, then, and you should be doing it really helps to sort of nurture what is just basically sort of a germ of a, of, of a concept that makes it possible. Yeah, my dad wasn't feeling so enthusiastic. He was a businessman. But my mom was a, is a teacher and she was just right there helping me out any way she could. It is kind of funny about my dad is that once I got the staff job at National Geographic, he was so proud. <laughs> he was so proud. He's and it was in his 80s and I would go visit him and he would make sure he would take me to the grocery store with him and he wore his National Geographic hat and all the cashiers knew who he was and wanted to introduce them to me. It was a bit embarrassing, but I felt like I had tried ever since my interest in photography to make him proud. And I think I finally did. Yeah. And that's important. After you studied photography in college, what was your career like immediately afterwards? Uh, well, let's see. As soon as I graduated from college, I got a job for, at the uh, Idaho Statesman in Boise, Idaho for a year. And then National Geographic had me, uh, offered me a contract job, which was 200 days a year from 90 to 97. And then in 97, I went staff. But, but what really prepared me for all of that after college was my internships in college. Mm. I got a job at the Orange County Register in April of 19... Of April of 1984, just before the Olympics were in LA. I'm a freshman in college, and that was a fantastic opportunity for me. Our photo department ended up winning the Pulitzer Prize for our Olympic coverage. Um, I was a part of developing the film for all that, and I was a lab tech and running film from events. We had a tremendous fire at the newspaper during the middle of all that, and I was like running out of the building carrying file cabinets full of, file drawers full of uh, film from our Olympic coverage. And I did three internships. One was at uh, the Colorado Springs Gazette that's no longer there. One was at National Geographic. And that, of course, that's how they got to know me. And then one was at the Sacramento Bee. And these internships were fantastic. I encourage every young person to do as many internships as they could. At Cal State Fullerton, where I went to school, internships were seen as something you just kind of had to do. And they usually got an internship at the local 
free newspaper um, just to satisfy that requirement. But when I was working at the Orange County Register, all of those working photographers had been these super students from great photojournalism schools like uh, University of Missouri and Western Kentucky. And they said, oh, no, we don't do just one internship. We do several internships. I was like, really? They say, yeah, you can get a job. It's easier for you to get an internship at a great photo newspaper like the San Jose Mercury News than it is to get a job there. So why would you not want to at least get an internship there? Hmm. And uh, so therefore, and my boss, Ron Mann, who was the director of photography there, part of his goals for me were to do an internship every summer, and then he would find a temporary replacement for me. So that was so important. That really helped nurture me along with working in, with all these professional photographers at probably the, at the time, the greatest color newspaper in the country, yeah. the Orange County Register. The LA Times was black and white for years until they went color. And I learned to shoot color, which is so different. And, you know, it's one of those things that you look back and go, wow, the reason that I'm here is because of a lot of these other little steps that happened along the way. And people who open the door and there's doors that I walked through and things would be so different if maybe some of those different paths didn't lead in the same direction. You know, a lot of people will do in internships. But that doesn't necessarily necessarily result in them getting an offer, a contract, or a job. What do you think that the people at National Geographic saw in you, or that you demonstrated, that made them think, this is someone that we want on board? Oh, that's a very good question. I wonder. I ask myself <laughs> the same thing often. Um, you know, I think my advice that I give college students is just, the number one thing is don't be a knucklehead. There's a lot of college students who walk around with their photo vests and their cameras, and it's all about the idea of being a photographer and presenting that idea. And it's kind of, and at, at Cal State Fullerton, you never saw me with cameras. Not not because I didn't work for the paper. I worked for the Orange County Register at the time, so I didn't have time to work for the school paper. But for me, it was just I see a lot of students that like the idea of it and like to project the idea of it, but they're paying attention to the wrong things. I find that maybe what they saw in me here was someone who just paid attention to the right things. It wasn't about ego. It was just all about getting the job done. Thinking, think, plan, and do. Think about the visual problem you have to solve planning what you have to, how you're going to solve it, and then actually executing it and doing it. And that's just the advice that I I give college students. Just don't be a knucklehead. Be focused on the right things and not about you. It's about the pictures that you make. That's something that I have always thought about photographers that work and produce images for National Geographic. It's not so much that they're great photographers, though. Many of them are. I think what what makes them really incredible is their ability to solve problems. Because there are articles that I've read and I look at the pictures and I just go, how the hell did they do that? You know, because not only just the logistical, technical challenges they sometimes have to face, but just, you know, just sort of the mental and physical challenges as, as well. Tell me about learning about that aspect 
of of the stories and the image images that the magazine makes. What impression did that sort of make on you early on? Well, you know, at National Geographic, there are no excuses. You know, at newspapers, you could always say, well, we, we have a deadline. We, we can't stay for three days. We have to be back to the newspaper by nine at night so we can get it in the next day's paper. Um, you can't say you didn't have enough time. You don't have enough money because our stories have got budgets like no other magazine. You can't say you don't have enough equipment because we have access to all the equipment we need. So if you don't come back with the picture, there's no excuses. It's all on you, hmm. right? Think about that, right? You can't say you don't have enough time. You can't say you don't have enough equipment. You, didn't, you, don't, you don't have enough money. You, can't, you, didn't, didn't, you couldn't travel to that place, whatever it might be. So you do whatever it takes to do the job. And when you begin to open your mind and think that anything is possible, then... You know, and sometimes, you know, you think, hey, I've got this great idea, and you head down that path, and you head out the door with all this gear and all this equipment and, and everything you need to do it, and you get there, and it just doesn't pan out. Um, circumstances beyond your control, kind of, and you don't come back with much. But other times, there's serendipity, and you get out there, and stuff just is more amazing than you ever imagined. And you think about what did it take to get there? And I'm kind of talking in the abstract right now, but, you know, you can't take great pictures sitting back in an office somewhere, right? You've got to be out in the field. You've got to be out there where stuff is going on. I did, a story will be published soon on Alaska smoke jumpers. Mm-hmm. that will be in our magazine either in May or June. It's on a dual track right now with another story, and they're trying to decide if this other story is going to be ready, and if it's not, then they'll put smoke jumpers in. So uh, I can't tell you exactly the month. We don't know that yet, but I spent two summers in Fairbanks, Alaska, following Alaska smoke jumpers, and they gave me incredible access because these are people that I've known forever in, in the in the fire world when they were lowly fire people and now they've worked their way up into management positions and they gave me access that no other uh, photographer or media person has been given. It was really fantastic. Great people up there. It's kind of a corollary to that story on Russian smoke jumpers that I did so many years ago. You brought that up. That's why it popped in my head. Can you give me an example of a situation where you thought you had it figured out in terms of what you were going to do in terms of getting the image, and then for whatever reason, it just was not working, and that you had to you know, think on your feet or rethink it in order to get the picture? Uh, let's see. You know, I... <laughs> I wish I could remember them. I tend to purge those from my mind. <laughs> the ones that, that are embedded in my mind are the ones that it's like, I can't believe that worked out so well. It was just dumb luck. Because, mm-hmm. you know, it's fascinating taking a look at your career because, you know, you, you've done a lot of stuff in studio, you know, in which you're photographing a variety of different items or objects and, you know, and people tend to think, oh, yeah, that's, that's easy work. All you have to do is just light something and take a picture. But as you said, you know, National Geographic is known for great photographs. So it's not just put a softbox here, click the shutter, and uh, hand it over. Tell me about you know, just the challenge of looking at whatever object 
you know, an artifact of, uh, or something like that, and trying to think about, okay, how am I going to make this interesting? That's a very good question. Um, so when we're in the studio, we sometimes do these edgy portraits for the section of the magazine called Genius. And I work with a very talented photographer named uh, Rebecca Hale, who works here in the studio with me. Uh, we both work on these portraits, and, and we're always thinking about what we can, how we can light it in a more interesting way. And we set those portraits up ahead of time. We test them out on us. Um, but, but more to your point is on artifacts. So I recently, last year, in I think the June issue of National Geographic, was a story I did on the lost colony of Roanoke. And they were looking for artifacts along the Outer Banks. And I was photographing them as they were coming out of the ground. And the largest artifact was the size of my thumbnail. Most of them were smaller. Wow. So, of course, I'm in there with a macro lens. But I'm using studio lighting techniques. So I brought with, I modified one of my strobes, a strobe that just fits on your camera, to accept a fiber optic cable that was about a foot and a half long and about as wide as a grease pencil. And that allowed me to bring a light source, a very small light source, very close to the artifact. So when I'm thinking about lighting something, I'm thinking about having the light source match the size of the object. And when you're dealing with things that are so wow. small, I don't want to use a softbox that's even like one foot by two foot. That's giant to this, to this little arrowhead that is the size of my pinky nail, right? I, the light will wrap around it too much. I try and miniaturize myself down to the size of that artifact and then imagine how I would want to light myself if that makes any sense. Mm, no, it doesn't. So, so there's uh, you know, uh, these small artifacts, and I ended up lighting them with fiber optics that are connected to this regular strobe. And I'm in there with a macro lens, so my fiber optic is within an inch or two of the object, and I can very precisely place it to show the contours in a glass arrowhead, for example. One of the significant finds they found was... Uh, the tip of a glass arrowhead. And this is the 1580s. So they, the glass was, was their version of gorilla glass, the, the mm. native, uh, the, the colonists. So it was repurposed from like a compass, some sort of very strong glass. So, th so the Native Americans repurposed the glass from a scientific instrument that were brought over by the colonists. How cool is that? That is fascinating. And it's a very thin piece of glass. Most of the glass that was, was thick that was used in, in windows and in lanterns. So um, it was flaked. And I wanted to show these little tiny flakes the way an arrowhead is flaked. But it was glass and had little bubbles in it. So I, I positioned this fiber optic. And I'm working in these little tiny tolerances. And I'm not in a studio. I'm like at a dig site in the woods. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> it is really complicated and really tedious, but that is an example of, of, of a picture that I made that, that required very precise lighting techniques that I would normally use in a studio, but I used in the field. Yeah. And I, I know for myself, if I were photographing something that few people have seen in hundreds of years... That I would have a sense of just feeling giddy at being not only witnessing it, but you know, being able to photograph it, being one of the few people who can photograph it. Do you, do you have that experience many times? 
Um, sometimes. Sometimes I do. In fact, um, in February, a bust of Nefertiti that came out of a tomb is going to be on display in our museum. And they've already arranged for me to photograph it in our studio one morning in February. And yeah, it, we only have it for like 20 minutes. Someone from oh, wow. the, the, the museum in Egypt will be here holding it and or positioning it and touching it. So there's, I, I photographed the Hope Diamond in the, in the a 40 carat diamond in the uh, Smithsonian vault that it's kept in and had built a little tiny studio there that was appropriate to the Hope Diamond in the, in the necklace. So yeah, it's, it is amazing, but you know, like the Hope Diamond, it's just a piece of glass. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it, it's all about it's all about the picture that I'm making. You know, it sounds sounds silly, but um, my mind is not on how wonderful and special this thing is. My mind is, don't drop it, <laughs> and <laughs> and 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 think about the contours of it and how you can really show what's special about it. Photograph that our artifact how it wants to be photographed. But like, as you just mentioned, with the bust of Nefertiti, you got 20 minutes with it. So there must be a lot of planning that goes into leading up to that that 20 minutes that you have with it. Yes, we will have it all set up the day before. We'll set up different lights and strobes. We'll have something to represent it standing in for it. And then we will shoot it a lot of different ways. And some lights we will have, and we only turn on some lights for some shots and turn on other lights at other times. We have enough lights here that we can just do whatever we need to do and we will figure out exactly kind of a sequence of how we'll go through and shoot it so that we'll get everything that we need. Do, do you work with the editors in terms of the kinds of images that they need for the purpose of the, the story? Do they give you a bunch of notes in terms of, well, we're considering this for a cover or, or this might be showcased in a layout in a particular way that makes you, uh, that makes that contributes to your planning for, uh, for the shoot? Uh, sometimes, uh, for example, in the July issue of National Geographic last year, I did a story on human performance. And this is a story that some other photographers had been working on, but they came to me, I knew nothing about this story, because they wanted some kind of beautiful body pictures of athletes. We, we talked about the different styles and these were going to be, these are like Olympic athletes, just notable athletes that, that have pushed their bodies to perform in unique ways. And really like the next guy named uh, Michael Andrew, who's the next Michael Phelps. And in terms of swimming, Olympic swimming, you're going to hear about him uh, in the 2020 Olympics for sure. Um, so I did some test shots here in the studio and then kind of got them to sign off on the lighting technique and how these would look. And then off on the road I went to photograph uh, them in Kansas and South Carolina. And I, I photographed a ballet dancer here in the studio. Then I went down to spring training and photographed some uh, baseball athletes. So, so we kind of had this treatment that we wanted to do. Part of the coverage was a documentary style that some other photographers had photographed. And then they came to me when they needed some of the uh, kind of beautiful body pictures. Mm -hmm. if you will. So um, I photograph them. So that was kind of the visual treatment for that story. There's something else that we do, and that's something relatively new. It's in the front of the magazine called Toolkit. So for example, we'll photograph a beekeeper's toolkit or a globe maker's toolkit. Uh, I recently photographed a black and white 
printer's toolkit. So this is like someone who makes black and white prints the old analog way. It's a double truck, so it goes a spread, across a spread, across two pages. And we have to keep into account where the gutter is and then along the bottom of the page where we have to leave room for some text so that you can, there's a little bit of a description. And on the right side of the page is uh, call-outs. So, for example, there'll be numbers against all these items, like this is the timer that the black and white printer uses. That might be number four. And then off to the right will be number four, a little paragraph about what the timer is used for. So, yeah, we do have to pay attention to the layout in certain cases, certainly. Yeah. You're known for all the work that you've done on firefighters, uh, especially wildfires in, in particular. And to the surprise of, I'm sure, many people listening to this who are not familiar with your work, is that that was not done on assignment. That was started as a personal project. Um, That's right. That's so right. Tell me about, I mean, I, I think a lot of personal projects with throwing myself in the middle of a wildfire is not one that immediately comes to mind. How did it come up to mind, uh, come to mind for you? So I had been at National Geographic for a couple years. Um, I'm in my late 20s. Um, I had just come from Boise, Idaho, working for that newspaper, which is kind of fire central in the, in, in the United States uh, for forest fires. I was talking to, a, there were some fires there when I was there that I covered for the newspaper and had a lot of good friends who were wildland firefighters and in that world. And I was talking to some of them about how I was looking for a personal project. The pace of National Geographic is much slower than it was in newspapers that I was used to. And they said, you know what, Mark, you, we could, I could get you fire training. And you could have unfettered access to natural disaster or to, to wildland fires. And so I went to Idaho City. I went through a five-day class that all wildland firefighters go through to, to get their red card, it's called. Then I've kept up the refresher ever since. But what that allowed me to do was to, to kind of gain access to that fire world. In California, media has unfettered access to natural disasters. That's great, right? They're not going to come save you. you. It's kind of at your own peril. Mm-hmm. But in the rest of the country where there are these forest fires, it's, it's a people problem. You have to get access. You have to talk to the team that's managing that fire and then let them get you access and usually have to bring you in escorted. And then you're usually out by the time the fire gets going in the afternoon. So getting this fire training, also I was able to meet a lot of really good people in the fire world. So I would spend my vacations from National Geographic going to Boise and hanging out, waiting for fires to start. So I'm there before they start. And I made some great friends. And getting back to your point about, there were a few summers where I was there for two weeks and nothing happened. So getting back to your point, where I was trying to think of what that thing was that just never panned out, that's one of them. Um, But other times, I've seen some incredible fire behavior. So then I have just gathered a lot of fire experience and met a lot of great people in the fire world. So when on the magazine, National Geographic wanted to do a story on why the West is burning in 2008, pub, I shot it in 2007. I was the one they called on and, and I was well prepared. I had all the connections. This isn't a story that I just shot over six weeks in 2007. I had met all these connections and was and for so for those uh, six 
it was five weeks that I was out in the Pacific Northwest that summer. I went to five fires. I spent only five nights at hotels. The rest were at my tents at fire camps in Idaho. It was the biggest season Idaho had ever had. I went through Northern California, Idaho, and up into Montana photographing uh, forest fires, met some lifelong friends, and everyone has had bad experiences with media. So at first they're a little leery, but when you kind of show that you went through the fire training and, and then when I tell them I did the story on Russian smoke jumpers, every firefighter has heard of that story. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's still, even though it's you know, 10 years old, it's still sitting at their base and they still mention it. Probably a dog-eared copy of the magazine there on a coffee table. And, they, oh, I've seen that, and, which is always nice. So I've, uh, and, and I'm afraid to stop because I have so much fire experience now and I have so many friends that can help me get the access that I need that, and, and I've learned to think creatively in these kind of difficult situations that uh, I don't want to stop doing it. it uh, some of these pictures can be, it can be really hard to photograph wildfire because you have to be at the right place kind of at the wrong time. And it's just a very, um, and, and even when you decide, so if you're at a forest fire, typical morning is, okay, there's a briefing at 5 a.m. So you wake up in your tent. In Montana, it might be 26 degrees out, believe it or not. <laughs> and you're in your, how can a fire be burning today, right? So there's inversion layer is in, it's all smoky, you're coughing. It's like fog, but it's dark black fog. And then you're at the briefing, and then I decide which group I'm going to go with. And then go get a quick bite to eat, rendezvous with them, and we drive to where part of the fire we're going to be at. And, if we're, and we're there all day. We don't come back until 10 o'clock at night. So if I've picked a part of the fire that is not going to, all of a sudden it's not very active. It's all the activity is on another part of the fire. I'm kind of already committed. I can't get over to that part of the fire. It might take me two hours on these little mountain roads mm. to get there. And then by that time, you know, they might be all be bugging out. They might be evacuating if the fire activity is too severe. So it is just really, really hard. So for those five weeks, I didn't take a day off because I was afraid that was going to be the day the fire blew up. And you just have to be dogged because there's no, there's no footnote on your pictures. If you don't have the right pictures, there's no footnote saying this was the best Mark can do, even though he was at the fire, you know, was at fires working every single day for five weeks. You know, there's, there's none of that. There's no excuses. Hey, I know I've been asking you for months to consider becoming a Patreon supporter and explaining why it's so important to us. And I know you've been intending to do it, but just haven't gotten around to it. But we could really do with your help. If your life is anything like mine, you know about the frustration of getting nickeled and dimed with bank fees, cable fees, and fees for this and that. So I get it that it's not always fun to be asked to give up more of your money, even if it's just $5. But consider that your support goes to something that you not only enjoy, but hopefully find inspiring. And it's something that you believe in. You're never going to feel that way about a bank fee. 
So become a Patreon supporter and commit to a reoccurring donation of $5 or more a month. Sign up today by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame or click on the link in the show notes or the candid frame website. Thanks and back to the show. You, you mentioned that the people, um, some of the firefighters have had bad experience with other photographers. And is part of their bad experiences having to do with the photographers in pursuit of getting the images, not prioritizing safety, not only of themselves, but the people that they're with? So usually the uh, complaint I hear are not so much from photographers. There aren't many photographers that are going to fires, believe it or not. It's usually the TV media. Like if it's a big fire, there'll be a crew from a national network being dispatched from New York City, and now they're going to like hike up a hill. Or they'll go down a hill, but they're not in shape to come back up the hill, carrying a 50-pound camera on their back and all the stuff that's needed. And then they don't know the fire world and the fire lingo. And they take some of the comments out of context. Yeah, so that's, that's kind of it. Plus, they haven't had any training. Yeah. Fire is so counterintuitive. So here's, here's the thing. Like, when I first started this project, I always thought, oh, there's the fire. There's there, like the black area where the fire was. That's dangerous. The fire was just there. I don't want to go near that. But actually, what they train you is stay, keep one foot in the black and you'll always come back. And what they mean by that is that black is where the fire is already burned. So if you can stay close to that, that's a good safety zone for you if all of a sudden things change and the wind shifts, yeah. right? So, so and, there's, and the fire world is full of these kind of counterintuitive things that, that you need to know to be safe. And then, then, then when you're out there and the other wildland firefighters see you doing those things and seeing that you're kind of acting like a wildland firefighter, they then think of you as one of them. And that is key. When I'm the first time with a crew, uh, I might know their crew boss or the guy who's in charge, but there's a bit of, you know, I can feel it. There's that getting to know me day. And then I'll, by, by the time I'm with them for a week, we're all buddies. And they all know, they know all everything about me and I know everything about them. And there's this mutual trust that goes on. And they know that I've got their back in case anything's going on and that they've got my back. So I'm just not out there alone. We're all in this together. It really, it really is important. And that always is the case. Um, I've met some lifelong friends through this. And, and that's, the, that's the best thing about my job. It's not getting my pictures in National Geographic magazine. Now that wore out a long time ago for me. <laughs> the, the thrill are the people I get to meet along the way. That's the best part of this job. Uh, the Olympic swimmers, astronauts, scientists that are, I know are going to win the Nobel Prize someday for their discoveries, or these or wildland firefighters that I meet on the line. You know, that's the best part about my job. You, you mentioned briefly the Russian fire uh, fire jumpers. You know, if you've worked with fire fire jumpers, firefighters from all over the country and as well as Russia. Is there something, is there a certain kind of person that takes on this gig? Because they, they definitely don't get, you know, you don't get rich from doing this. 
<laughs> yeah, to, an- to directly answer that question, uh, there's something about getting bit by the firebug. That you go and do it for maybe a, a summer job away from school. And then you get hooked. And you have this incredible season and you can't wait to come back next year. And then you then change your major into forestry. And then next thing you know, you're doing it full time and it's a lifestyle. And you're working your way up through the wildland firefighter community, right? So there's, there is lots to that. Now, now in Russia, it's, it's very different. So in Russia, they're woodsmen first and firefighters second. There are no women firefighters in, in Russian smoke jumpers. So most all of the firefighters, wildland firefighters in Russia are smoke jumpers. They have like 4,000 of them. We have 400. They get 75 bucks a month, no hazard pay, no overtime. When they jump out of a plane, they carry the metal head of a shovel that they've forged in the off season. And then when they get to the ground, they whittle a handle out of a sapling in five minutes with a hatchet that they did in the off season as well. And then they'll use that shovel to the soil underneath the, the moss there is pretty sandy. So they'll throw sand on the fire and fight it that way. Uh, they don't have these, like you see high, these backfire techniques, these the fusees like highway flares that mm-hmm. our wildland firefighters use. You fight fire with fire. They're taking birch bark from a tree and wrapping it around a stick and making these little campfires and kind of lighting it along the way to create a backfire. It's a very primitive way of fighting fire, but they do more with less. It is amazing what they do. They have these Naga hide boots one size fits all and for socks it's rags wrapped around your feet and if you have small feet you just use more rags and many of them had never met anyone who hadn't spoke russian before let alone two journalists that are landing in a helicopter at their fire it was it was it was quite quite an experience it's very different than um, u.s smoke jumpers but alaska is as good as it gets so talk to me about making gun photographs of fire because in California I see it a lot just because of the you know the abundance of wildfires here on the western coast and I'm always amazed by some of the imagery that I see come from that but uh, the smoke the heat the terrain you know makes makes it very difficult to just navigate much less make photographs so what you know you're trying to stay safe you're trying not to get in the way but you're trying to make those good photographs so what are some of the considerations that you have to make and how are you observing what's happening in front of you in a visual way that translates to a great photograph well uh, fire at night is always beautiful no matter what's going on so i always am trying to get fire at night the other problem is the smoke is that when you, you can have a beautiful scene, but if the wind shifts slightly and blows all the smoke between you and the fire and the scene, you've got nothing. And to your mind, it doesn't look so bad because you know your mind can kind of make up for it and figure out what's there uh, and, and sees through the smoke essentially, but your camera doesn't. And you get kind of this washed out picture with some fire in it and it just looks horrible. 
Um, so a lot of it is I'm constantly dancing with the wind and dancing with the smoke. And then I'm trying to think ahead. Am I in the right place for the next three seconds, three minutes, or 30 minutes? Should I, you know, should I continue down this road? Should I park my car here and, and, and make sure that it's safe so that if any power lines fall down, I won't get trapped into, in the residential neighborhood? Uh, it's easier for me to park my car outside the fire and then walk in than it is to be inside with my car. So I'm always kind of thinking about that and then think, where's, which direction is the fire going? Which way is the wind blowing? You know, it's, it's, it's always, you just have your head on a swivel, making sure you're not getting run over by a fire truck coming down the road. There's a lot of vehicle traffic sometimes, you know, it's just really hard. It is really hard. And, and the only way I, I wish I had some eloquent answer for that. But for me, the answer is to just be out there a lot, Mm -hmm. to be out there a lot. So you have more chances to get those kind of pictures, those surprising pictures. Um, for example, in this, so one of the things that um, just came out is this book called Spectacle from National Geographic. Mm-hmm, right. And, and uh, I wrote the forward to it, and it's 200 pictures that are, um, you know, it's a full-size coffee table book. And I've got a few fire pictures in here, and one of them was taken from the inside of a vehicle. And I was in Montana working on this story, and I was deep in with the guy who was in charge of the fire, and they're doing a backfire on this road and they're burning out like two miles of, of along this road. And then it was about, you know, four or five in the afternoon, the winds are kicking up, everything's doing well. And then all of a sudden the wind shifted and in the daytime, you don't notice it so much, but you start seeing the smoke blowing across our line. And we were trying to keep the fire out of the other side of this dirt road, which is the green area. So we were going to stop it along this road. But the wind shifted, and, and then all of a sudden it got dark. And the clouds came in front of the sun. And, and it got dark, and then up in those, I shouldn't say the clouds, the black smoke came in front of the sun and blocked out the sun. And then embers came through the air and landed on the other side in the green side. And soon we could look through the trees deep in the green side and you saw bright orange in there. So the fire had jumped the road at that point, carried by these embers that in the daytime you don't see, but at night they're spectacular. So he was, I'm with the division supervisor, the guy in charge of these, you know, 80 firefighters on this part of the fire. And he's getting word that behind us, which is our way out, that it's jumped the road at a lot of places and they can't get their handle on it. They're trying to, get those spot fires out and they can't. And then the wind's picking up more. And so then he, I'm with him when he makes this decision to evacuate everyone out and we evacuate out. So I hop in as the passenger seat of his car and I'm shooting pictures. And this picture that's in the spectacle book is of sitting in the passenger seat with fire ahead of us and fire to the right of us out the window and fire in the rear view mirror. And we drove through walls of smoke that opened up into walls of flame as we escaped to our safety zone with everybody else. Everyone was fine and the, the, nobody panicked, but it, that picture kind of put you right there. That picture mm-hmm. is, is I like about that picture is it puts all my friends who I talk about fire and there's nothing they can relate to being in a wildland fire. That is a relatable p- picture for them. You're in the passenger seat of a pickup, but out the window is walls of flames. Um, and that is what uh, one of the pictures that, that 
I love because it yeah. just just feels so kind of raw and in the moment and it's a kind of an arresting picture and i remember when i made that picture i was i piled down the motor drive as we went through all this smoke i'm like (laughs) and uh, (laughs) and and then i'm looking at it and i'm like wow and he's the division supervisor has got a million things he's got two walkie talkies he's going he's Mm -hmm. driving with his knee he's trying to coordinate all this stuff and i was going my gosh did i just take that picture did i just take that picture and i was looking at the back of my camera going wow i did just take that picture that's unbelievable that's a really good picture. And, and I, could, I could tell at that time that this was something that was going to stay with me. And then at that moment, I thought about, I thought about, wow, what it took for me to be right there on that mountainside, on that dirt road in Montana that day, mm. in that hour. You can't be doing that from a studio in Washington, D.C., you can't be doing that from, the, from someplace else in Montana. I had to be right there at that particular time to get that picture. And the only way you do that is you, you are dogged and you're out there every day for five weeks and not taking a day off because you never know what's going to happen next yeah. when you're at a wildfire. But you also have to, as amazing as that is, you also have to have a great respect for the nature of fire. And the speed by which it moves, uh, it's unpredictability and all of those things. It's not just about, okay, being dogged and just being persistent and I'm going to get the picture. But at the same time, you have to be thinking about, okay, I got to make it out of this in order for this picture. <laughs> that's a, <laughs> that's a good print. point. Um, one other thing I should have added is that you also learn to be very humble. You have to be humble. And that's part of your fire training. And I think that's good in all aspects of photography, whatever you're dealing with, whatever subject you're photographing, because you are not in control most of the time. In a wildland fire, I am not in control of anything. Mm-hmm. I'm only in control of can I get my safety for the most part. If I'm not in control of my safety, I've made a mistake somewhere along the way. And it's important to, uh, you know, have respect for your subject, whether it be uh, an athlete that's giving you his or her time to do a studio photo session with them in their living room in Kansas in the middle of winter, or it's a pro athlete that you've set up a studio in the locker room, or it's being at a wildland fire where they have kind of allowed you to ride along with them. And, or if it's the fire itself where, you know, you know, you can do your best to be safe, but you just really never know what's going to happen next. And that's what you do to mitigate your risks in wildland fire. You mitigate risks by being respectful and humble to mother nature. Have you had a really close call? Uh, There was once in Idaho when I was first starting this project that um, there were no like dramatic pictures that came out of it. That's often the case (laughs) because you're too close to shoot anything. But there was a fire where we were doing a backfire and the fire engine and and myself and the guy doing the backfire were along this road and it was an old road. So it was covered with brush and they had worked their vehicle, their fire engine there. Because what they do is they, they light along the road and then they have a hose connected to the fire engine and then they'll damp out, dampen out one side of it so that it encourages the fire to burn towards the existing fire and burn up all the fuel. And in this case, uh, the wind shifted again. And there was somebody watching us as a lookout. That's a safety thing. And 
I, they gave me a two-way radio and it was, they were saying, Hey, the wind's shifting. You guys got to get out of there and get that photographer out of there. And this was before they really, the boss really had a rapport with me. And I heard that on the radio and I didn't even stop to to kind of look around and see what my situation was. I already had my escape route. It was down into this gully over this barbed wire fence up the other side of the gully and across this field of dry brush and right to him i made a beeline and i like the other guy and then i get there and i turn around and they're like way behind me (laughs) 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 they're way behind me but i made a picture of them coming across but you know within minutes that field was consumed by fire you know, you often hear wildland firefighters, maybe you heard me talk about fuel. They talk about the vegetation mm-hmm. in the forest as fuel. And that was the first time. Yeah, it seemed like fuel. When you're at a fire and you're walking through dry brush, it's like you're walking through a giant pool of gasoline that just hasn't been ignited yet. But it will. So you want to make sure you stay out of situations like that. Yeah, you have that video footage of that, of that contraption that you made in which you showed the fire coming and then sweeping through it in a matter of minutes. And I've always known that fire moves quickly. So anytime I see people saying that they're going to stick around and you know, defend their property, I'm like going, get your pictures, get your hard drives and get the hell out of there. Because you know you don't play with that stuff. But when I saw that, that video, it made, it reinforced that impression on me. Talk about that device that you you created and and what it captured for people who have not had the the benefit of being able to see it. So what you're talking about is our fire cam. So uh, a number of years ago, uh, as a result of being in situations where I had to leave because it was just getting unsafe, it was like, oh, the pictures are getting just really good right now, but it's just too dangerous. I can hear, you know, ammunition exploding and garages near me and you know propane tanks were were venting and i i just had to leave and i was like i wish i could leave a camera behind so uh we have photo engineers that build us specialized camera equipment so they built me four of these boxes that are fireproof that have two openings glass openings one for a hd video camera and another one for a still camera and i can put them out ahead of a fire and let the fire burn right over them and um so what you're talking about i did in the northwest territories and it's a crown fire that's moving through the area and it comes from behind you and then you start to see and you can find this on youtube i think I think it's called Surrounded by Fire is what they titled it when they put it on there. Um, anyway, you start to see these embers landing out in front of you in the, in the green forest. And they just start igniting. And then you see it gets completely dark. And then the wind picks up. as the, It gets dark with the smoke that's coming from behind you, blocks out the sun. And then the wind comes. And that's the wind that's created by the fire. And then that comes and starts blowing everything. And then you end up in this tidal wave of fire as it just goes, you're surrounded by it. It's burning up everything around you. And that clip takes a minute and 30 seconds. And it's unbelievable how it quickly changes the landscape. And that's what it's like to be in the middle of a fire. And, you know, I've, I, I want to do more with the fire cam. It, it takes a lot of luck to get it out there ahead of time, and it's 50 pounds, and I have four of them. And it's, it's tedious to set up and 
it has blue ice in there to keep everything cold yeah. so the cameras don't melt. And that's kind of hard to maintain at a fire. Um, but it's, it's, it's one of the great things about working at National Geographic is you have an idea like that. And if they halfway think it'll work, then they will yeah. send you out to go do something with it. Well, you've been working on, on photographing fire for over two de- decades. And I'm curious to know whether there is a photograph that you have yet to make of that subject that you would love to make. Well, there is. A, there is. I would love to do fire in Australia. So in Australia, they can stay and defend their homes. And they don't stay and defend their home because they don't want their home to burn. They stand to defend their home because it's, the, it's like a shelter in place like we have in the United States, right? Like we have a shelter in place situation here at work in case it's too dangerous to go outside and we might have to be hunkered down here at the office for three days mm-hmm. for whatever reason. So in Australia, everything's a eucalyptus tree. They're incredibly flammable and they have these Santa Ana type winds there and it's just an ecosystem that's just made to burn. And I would love to follow a family that is going to stay and defend their house because that's the safest place for them. Mm. And people do this and very successful at it. There's so when the fire is coming, you, the, you, it's an ember storm first, and then you have already put foil around the eaves of your vents to keep fire embers from getting in your attic. You've put wet towels around your doorways around the seal off your doorways. You've taken the curtains down from inside your house so that the infrared heat won't catch your curtains on fire uh, inside the house. Um, you're outside with a mop and a bucket and you're putting out every ember that might get started on your house somewhere as these 40, 50 mile an hour winds are blowing these hot, dry embers at your house. And then um, you run inside your house when the main flaming front comes and your house won't burst into flames. I talked to people who have been through all this in Australia because there's just so much mass for your house. It's just not going to go. Mm-hmm. But then once and the flaming front will come through in about 10 minutes, it's the, then you can go outs back outside and it's going to be hot and smoky and there'll be embers still from the stuff that's upwind that's blowing at you but then you run out and put out any little fire that's gotten started around your house and you're doing that to protect you you're not doing it just to protect your house because you want to protect your house so i would love to photograph that whole thing and i went there a number of years ago for a magazine story and i had great access but it ended up being the wettest fire season in 20 years. So uh, I came back after three weeks. I was going to go for seven weeks, and I had great access, and it was in Melbourne, and that's when all the big fires are, are near Melbourne, in the state of Victoria. And uh, so that's something that I'd still love to do. But you got to get lucky. <laughs> <laughs> you got to get lucky to get that, that yeah. kind of, those kind of shots. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who that one photographer be and why? Oh, that one photographer. Um, let's see. I can think of so many. I can think of so many. Um, you know, okay. Charlie Hamilton James. He's a young, upcoming photographer here. Uh, not so young and not so upcoming. He's pretty established now. <laughs> he has done wonderful work on camera traps and with wildlife. 
that takes their own pictures. A camera trap is a camera in a weatherproof box and some strobes, and you set it up at a watering hole somewhere, and animals come and take pictures. Uh, and then the motion sensor sets it off when the animals come, so you get them doing kind of you know, real, real things. And he did some wonderful work in Yellowstone, and he did this wonderful piece on, on uh, vultures, and uh, he, his, he, and everything he does is just wonderful. So that's someone I would look up. Oh, great. Mark, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure to sit down and chat with you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure being here. Thanks to Mark Thiessen for sharing his time and his story with us. You can find out more about him and his work by visiting his page on the Nat Geo website. You'll find a link in the show notes. And I'm going to be in D.C. in May for the Focus on the Story Photographic Conference. The International Photo Festival will feature some of the world's best photojournalists and documentary photographers, as well as talks, photo walks, and workshops, of which I am teaching one. If you want to sign up for my workshop or just want to find out more about the event, visit FocusOnTheStory.org. And remember to check out my YouTube channel where I discuss different aspects of photography by pulling images from listeners just like you who contribute to the Candid Frame Flickr poll. You can check out the TCF Flickr poll and our YouTube channel by clicking on the link in the show notes and the website. My new book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, is now available. In it, I translate how to see and use light and shadow line and shape, color and gesture to make great photographs. It's more than how to make a good picture, but how you can develop a personal and intimate way of seeing and documenting the world around you. You can order the book today. When you place your order from the Rocky Nook website, use the promo code Porello40 to receive 40% off the list price. Check out the website and the show notes for the link. And if you want to keep up with all things Candid Frame, sign up for our mailing list and you'll receive three free copies of my previously published ebooks. And if you like what you're hearing on the show, please take the time to write a review in the iTunes store as it helps our ranking and creates greater awareness of the show. You can support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon, or you can make a one-time contribution via PayPal. You'll find the links for both in the show notes and the website. Thanks to Scott Allen and Joe McBee for their recent and generous contributions. I, I really appreciate it. And if you want to easily access every episode of The Candid Frame, download The Candid Frame app. It's available for both Apple iOS and Android, and it's free. Download it today. You'll find it where everything else is in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at the other martintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at Ibadianx. And this is Ibadianx, and this is The Candid Frame.